You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 33. Hello, everyone, and Happy New Year! I hope that you've been able to spend this holiday season with the people you love. As you hear this episode, my partner Melanie and I are just finishing up a week of visiting with family and friends in Michigan. We're getting ready for the long drive home back to Montana, so send us good wishes for fair weather. As you probably know by now, this is my weekly show where I share my fresh new fiction with you. So let's move right ahead into today's story. Today we're taking a break from my novel Things Unseen, because I'm on vacation right now and I don't want to spend a lot of time editing audio. Instead, I'm bringing you one of my short stories. This one is called Just Coffee, and it was first produced for my Patreon patrons and released to them in the beginning of November. I've promised my patrons that any bonus stories I produce for them will be exclusive to Patreon for at least a month. Since it's now been about two months, I figure this is a good time to release this story out into the world. Fair warning, this story contains spoilers for my short novel, The Three Graces, which ran on this show from August to October. If you haven't listened to it yet, go back and check it out before listening to this episode. This story takes place from Morgan Drowling's point of view, so you may want to also listen to Huntress if you haven't already. You'll find it in episode two of the Metamore City podcast. The link will be in the show notes. Just Coffee, A Tale of Metamore City by Chris Lester Like most branches of law enforcement, the Forensic Investigation Division runs on caffeine. There's no predicting when a body will turn up, and for some crucial forms of evidence, prompt examination is the key to a successful case. Our working hours are irregular as a result, and we compensate for it with the judicious use of stimulants. Not that that was much of a change from medical school, or my residencies. I was a caffeine addict long before I joined MCPD. Now, of course, whatever benefit I might get from coffee is likely down to the placebo effect. Vampires don't have a metabolism in the traditional sense, so it doesn't seem like any drug ought to be able to affect us for good or ill. Some still do, which, as a woman of science, I find annoying, especially when they're filtered through the blood of a mortal sharing partner. Maybe it's just the idea of the drug that affects us. It makes as much sense as any other conjecture I've heard. I still like coffee, though. There aren't many 24-hour coffee shops in Metamore City. Diners, yes, but calling what they serve coffee is a crime against semantics. Of the few that do exist, the majority are clustered on the second Skyway level, around the University District, where insomniac grad students and the last-minute homework crowd provide them with a steady stream of business. My favorite is the Night Owl, a charming, independent shop across the plaza from Warner Hall, where I had many of my classes back in med school. The place is an odd combination of modern and rustic, two stories tall and narrow as a row house, the walls and furniture alike a warm, varnished oak, but with broad glass windows covering most of the front, high-bandwidth wireless world net service, and enough power outlets to let a hundred students charge their phones or laptops at once. 
The decor inside matches this split personality, with abstract black-and-white macro photography tucked in between bookcases stuffed full of used paperbacks. The ambiance is usually quiet and studious, which I appreciate. Don't get me wrong, I can party with the worst of them, but if I'm headed out for a night on the town, I'll go to a nightclub, or a bar, or a dungeon. If I'm at a coffee shop, I'm looking for something more sedate, say, a one-on-one chat with a friend. Or possibly an enemy. I'm not sure at this point, which is honestly the main reason I agreed to the meeting. That, of course, and the coffee. I do have another five hours in my shift, after all. I scan the room as I come in, looking for possible threats. This could be a trap. On the first floor, all I see are college kids. Thirteen of them, mostly working on their computers or engrossed in their books. There is a group of three upperclassmen sitting in leather high-back chairs around a low coffee table near the windows. Their conversation stops as I walk in. I look at them carefully, meeting each of their eyes in turn. They stare back, slack-jawed. I can feel the contact with their minds through the vampiric gaze, not true telepathy, but a subtler sort of connection. I raise a finger to my lips and make a shushing noise, putting a whisper of power behind it. They nod, dumbly, and continue to stare. I approach the one closest to me, focusing my gaze on him. I'm looking for my sister. Is she upstairs? He trembles and nods. Did she come alone? I think so, he whispers. I smile at him without showing my teeth. Thank you. Have a good night. I turn and head for the stairs at the back of the shop, letting my black leather duster swish dramatically behind me. I do have a mystique to uphold. Then I stop three steps up, turn around, come back to the order counter, and order a large mug of black Westerombian blend. Priorities, you understand. The second floor is empty except for one patron, and I'm sure that was by design. She sits at a table for two near the window. She is not, in fact, my sister, but she could easily pass for such these days. Long dark hair like mine, pale skin, dark eyes, patrician nose, elegant features. She is several centimeters shorter than I, her face a bit rounder, her jawline softer, but in the broad strokes we look much alike. Of course, we both come from noble blood, and the gene pool of the peerage has always been limited, almost by definition. It would be more surprising if we looked nothing alike. She averts her eyes from me as I approach, fixing her gaze on a point beyond the window. A mortal would have found that rude, perhaps, but among my kind it is a show of respect. Predators don't look each other in the eye unless they mean to challenge each other. Or unless they intend to fuck, but Amelie Grace and I don't have that sort of relationship. She smiles without looking my way. Hello, Morgan. I'm so glad you could make it. Hello, Amelie. I take my seat across from her, then take a long sip from my coffee. Perfect. It's lovely to see you, darling. How are your sisters? I haven't seen any of them since our graduation. I hear they're well, Amelie says. Constance just had her third daughter this month. Oh, wonderful, I say. Will you be able to attend the naming? Her smile turns bittersweet. 
I'm afraid not. They're having the ceremony at St. Martin's. I raise my eyebrows in surprise at that. Since when are the Anduins ecclesiasts? Amelie's voice turned sour. Since they discovered that consecrated ground saves them from making all manner of excuses to excuse my absence. She shook her head, then took another drink from her cup. Not coffee, some kind of herbal tea by the scent of it. I'm sorry, Amelie, I say, and mean it. I know how it feels to be pushed away by one's own family. As I recall, Amelie says, you didn't require much pushing. I cover my expression with another drink of coffee. My memory flashes back to an angry conversation with my parents, the last I had with them in seven years. They told me my taste in boyfriends would lead me to grief. I told them they were racist, elitist, and controlling, and that having their money wasn't worth having them run my life. In the end, we'd both been right. I suppose that's fair, I say, quietly. We sit in silence for a moment, studying each other while pretending to study our mugs. I'm watching Amelie's body language, looking for any sign that she expects something to happen. Something like, say, an ambush. Why are you here, Amelie? I ask. Why now, after all these years? She smiles again, looking at a spot just over my right shoulder. So suspicious. What's wrong, Morgan? Can't I just ask an old friend to come out for coffee? She meets my gaze, just for an instant. Immediately I feel the snap of power between us. She is strong, maybe even stronger than I am, though I am unsure how much of that is her bloodline and how much is her investiture from the Vampire Queen. Amelie is a head priestess in the Church of Eternal Brotherhood, and the title is more than mere symbolism. She can work blood magic, and the full extent of her power is a carefully guarded secret. I look squarely back at her, just the same. I do not cow easily. Certainly not to a woman whom I remember stripping the clothes off her dollies when she was six. We're vampires, darling, I say, dryly. Nothing is ever just anything with us. Amelie chuckles. Perhaps not. She looks down at her cup, swirling the liquid this way and that. Tell me something, Morgan, and be honest. Are you lonely? Do you ever wish for the company of your own kind? Someone you can just talk to, and know they'll understand? A pang stabs through me. I think of the countless hours of searching for sharing partners, trying to weed out the would-be thralls and find someone who wants a real connection between equals. I think of going home to an empty bed, morning after morning. I think of breakfast in a bag from the hospital donor banks. I think of my morning coffees with Kate, play-acting at being a normal friend, glossing over the details of my undead condition, hiding behind jokes and irony, never truly coming clean about the hunger inside me, never telling her the truth of what I would do with her if I thought for a moment she would say yes. I look up at Amelie. She's watching me closely, and I can see in her eyes that she knows everything I'm feeling, even if I can't say it. It doesn't matter, I say quietly. I can't go back to your world, Amelie. It nearly destroyed me. Braddock nearly destroyed you, 
Amelie says, her voice low and intense. He never let you see a healthy way to live in between. We do things differently in the church. You're still using people, I say. Morgan, dear, you know it's not that simple. For the right kind of person, there is joy in submission. Peace. Contentment. My mind flashes back to another memory. A powerful, charismatic woman looming over me in bed, my wrists and ankles chained, my body spread wide before her. The smile in her eyes, that look of possession, and the thrill I felt at being so possessed. I close my eyes and swallow hard. I am grateful that I cannot blush. It doesn't matter, I say again, quietly. We both know Malcolm rules our kind in this city. You can say you're independent, but you know it's a lie. My friend Pamela went to your street mission for help, and we ended up with Fisher and a bunch of his goons trying to kidnap us. I laugh bitterly. We were rescued by the Spookies, if you can believe it. Amelie clucks her tongue, frowning. Gyron, he's been running the mission on my behalf for the last year. I always suspected he was working with Malcolm. I wonder what he's doing down there. Sending information to the syndicate, most likely, I say. So there we have it. The most progressive, civic-minded group of vampires in Metamore, and even you belong to Malcolm. Amelie's frown fades, slowly replaced by a coy smile. She leans in across the table, putting her lips by my ear as she watches the wall behind me. Not all of us, and not for long. I pull back and look at her. Her voice sounds confident, and her body language echoes it. What are you talking about? I ask. Amelie settles back into her seat, reaches into a pocket, pulls out a pen. She turns over one of her napkins to the blank, unprinted side, and draws a number eight. Then she makes eight angled lines around the number, radiating outward from the lower loop of the eight, four bending upward, four down. She turns it around and shows it to me. It looks a bit like a spider. Have you seen this symbol? she asks. I frown and think, then shake my head. I don't think so. Look for it the next time you travel streetside. You'll find it spray-painted on walls, pinned to the bodies of dead gangsters, and tattooed on the necks of live ones, always in white. I narrow my eyes at the drawing. So it's a gang tag. It is a movement, Amelie says fervently. People who refuse to bow down to the Prince of Valos Tower any longer. People who are choosing to fight back. I raise my eyebrows. They'll be slaughtered. I don't believe they will. It may look like chaos, but that's only to keep Malcolm off balance, distracted. Her smile sharpens, spilling rice all over his tidy little kingdom. I shudder at the thought. Vampires need order like plants need carbon dioxide. Why a spider? I ask. Because we are weaving a web for Malcolm, Amelie says, and when it is thick enough and strong enough, we will drive him into it. A bat in a spider's web? I ask, lightly. In her mortal life, Amelie was a theriomorph, a vampire bat. 
She flashes me a quick grin, and I can tell she appreciates the irony. We could use you, Morgan, Amelie says. You have a strong bloodline, and you're no longer bound to a master. I know you've kept a low profile because you were alone, but you don't have to be. Not anymore. An alliance to take down Malcolm? A few years ago, I would have said it was impossible. Hells, it still sounds impossible. But it also sounds like Amelie believes it can be done. And Amelie is many things, but never a fool. How would it work? I ask. You can't believe that a street-level rebellion is going to bring down Malcolm's empire. Of course not, Amelie says. The movement is broken into cells, each with a different mission. One agent recruits others, who recruit others in their turn. People from all walks of life, anyone who has an interest in taking down Malcolm. We know only the agent who recruited us, and the ones we have recruited. That way no one can betray us all. I frown, picturing the arrangement in my head. How do you coordinate something like that? Dead drops, Amelie says. Messages passed anonymously between cells, on the world net or in physical space. It can be slow, but it's safe. I nod, imagining a vast network of interconnected nodes. Weaving a web, I murmur. Precisely. Another thought occurs to me. So you recruit someone, and they go out and recruit others, but you don't know who the others are. I glance at her, checking my understanding. She nods. So how do you know the agents below you are still loyal to your cause? You don't, Amelie says. But here's the thing. You never know anyway. Even in an organization as controlling as Malcolm's, you can never fully eliminate the risk of moles and traitors. She gestures at herself by way of demonstration. So you compartmentalize, and if a cell goes rogue, the damage they can do is limited. I take another sip of my coffee, thinking it through. You want me to join your cell, I ask, to take part in this movement? Amelie smiles. I can think of no one I would rather have on my side. You have a rare skill set, and I know you are trustworthy. I'm also a sworn officer of the law, I remind her. If there's a criminal conspiracy in Metamore City, by all rights I should report it. Amelie doesn't seem flustered by the prospect. You could do, she admits. But what do you have, really? The word of one vampire? Remember, I am as compartmentalized as you are. If I were arrested, if Malcolm himself tortured me, I could reveal little more than I have already told you. She drinks her tea, studying me over the lip of the cup. But I don't think you're going to do that, Morgan. If you intended to betray me, you would have said yes immediately, and learned all you could about the organization before you went to the police. I could still do that, I say. Of course, Amelie agrees, serenely. But I think you have as much reason to want Malcolm gone as I do. She chuckles. There was already a criminal conspiracy in Metamore, Morgan. Think of us as the city's immune response to the cancer growing inside it. It's an analogy that resonates strongly with me. Amelie knew it would, of course, which is why she used it. A few years ago, that cancer nearly destroyed me. Caught me. Enveloped me very nearly incorporated me into itself. In the years since, I've dreamed of cutting it out, 
of saving whatever was left in the body that was untouched by its sickness. It always felt like a futile, hopeless dream. Until now. If, if I do this, I say, slowly, what would it entail? What would you want from me? Amelie shrugs. I'm not sure yet. Your vampire powers are useful, of course, but your knowledge and position are even more so. You have access to information. Bodies that appear in your morgue could be linked to syndicate activity. That information could be passed back up to the top of the network to help us see the shape of Malcolm's plans. I may even be able to pass connecting information back down to you to help you solve those crimes. That could be very useful, I admit. I could use you as a confidential informant if need be. No one would need know your identity or how you got the information. Amelie traces a finger around the spider drawing, a slow and deliberate figure eight. It sounds as if you've already made up your mind, dear. I frown at her. I won't hurt anyone for you. I wouldn't ask you to. And we keep the innocent out of the crossfire. If you want to target Malcolm and his soldiers, I'll wish you good hunting. But not if it means harming civilians. Amelie nods, slowly. I cannot guarantee that other cells will be so principled. But for my part, I agree with you. Anything else? I think about it. Yes. If you want information from me, I want information in return. I already said I would do that, Amelie says. Not about Malcolm. There's a rogue street wizard who hurt my friends. A biomancer named Coriandus Jolie. I look closely at Amelie to see if the name registers, but her face is a blank. If you come across any information about his whereabouts, I want it. Amelie nods. Done. She looks at me then, not directly into my eyes, but at my chin. She holds out her hands, smiling. Welcome aboard, Morgan. I can't quite dispel the unease in the pit of my undead stomach, but the prospect of actually deposing Malcolm is too tempting to give up. The MCPD has struggled for years to unseat the Vampire Prince and has never even gotten close. Maybe this movement is exactly what the city needs. I place my hands atop Amelie's forearms, gripping them just below the elbow. The ancient gesture of friendship and alliance is sealed. Thank you, I say. So what do we call this conspiracy, Amelie? The web? The spider? She shows me the barest glint of fangs. Just call it the white. And that was our story. I hope you enjoyed it. No feedback section this week, since I'm still on vacation, but I definitely encourage you to check out the Fans of Metamore City Facebook group. We're continuing to have an interesting discussion over there about Ball and the nature of evil. Follow the link in the show notes to share your thoughts. Finally, I have some important news this week about Metamore City books. The first Metamore City story collection, Urban Legends, is now available in ebook on both Smashwords and the Amazon Kindle store, and it will be available in print sometime in the next few weeks, maybe even by the time you hear this. In addition, 
Making the Cut is now available for pre-order as an e-book, and I'm working hard on getting the print edition out as soon as possible. So for all of you fans who've been asking me to make the early Metamore City stories available to you in print, your wish is about to be granted. If you'd like to leave feedback about the show, send your thoughts in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, call area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. You can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash author Chris Lester, and on Twitter at Ethereus, E-T-H-E-R-I-U-S. To converse with your fellow fans, join the Fans of Metamore City Facebook group. The link will be in the show notes. That's all for this week. Tune in next time for more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2015 and 2016 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.